0: Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we now come to your word, we confess together that we, um, we sit under its authority. We don't stand over it. We don't pick out the bits that we like. We submit to what you have spoken. And so help us now to listen Help us as your people to receive it, and we pray that we would hear your voice through your word by the power of your spirit this morning, and we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Christians are no different than non-Christians at least in some people's minds. There was a recent Barna study about five or six years ago that looked at the behavior of non-Christians and Christians. They tested them in all kinds of different categories of behavior, from uh, pornography use, alcohol abuse, to positive activities like helping the homeless and volunteering in the community. And the conclusion was that there was not much difference between the Christians and the non-Christians studied. This kind of conclusion that Christians are really no different than non-Christians can come out kind of anecdotally in our everyday conversations as well, can't it? Maybe it's uh, at the gym, and your friend kind of subtly intimates that she's every bit as kind and generous as you are, but she does it without having to go to church every Sunday or without the religious uh, lingo that's attached to your kindness and your generosity and your love for others. Or it can be more obvious, like the conversation I had with uh, a Muslim friend of mine a few months back, during which he sought to convince me that actually we believed and lived in exactly the same way. No real difference between him and me. And sometimes the question can creep into our minds, too, as followers of Jesus, I think. Are we really that different? We all know people who we look at and think they're decent, nice, upstanding people, and yet they don't follow Jesus. They seem to be doing okay. So what does it mean to be a Christian? Are we different? Are followers of Jesus distinct, new, other than the world around them? Well, Peter, in the passage we have before us this morning, 1 Peter chapter 2, 1-12, to 12, says absolutely. We are different. For followers of Jesus, according to Peter, everything has changed. We are new. We are distinct. We are different. And so the question that I think this passage answers beautifully for us this morning is what is it that is different? What is it that is distinct? What is it that is new about us as followers of Jesus Christ in the church Well, before we dig into the text, just a a few words on the context. Uh, Chapter 1, verses 22 to 25, those final four verses uh, of Stephen's passage, which we heard preached so wonderfully last week for us, uh, really begin the section that we will be diving into, beginning chapter 2, verse 1. So we'll take a running start by looking at those verses. If you'll look down at 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 22 to 25 you'll see that for Peter, being a follower of Jesus Christ means that we are born again by the Word. Now, there's a lot there um, in, verse, um, in verse 23. But then the phrase that follows is this call to love, love each other earnestly out of a pure heart. In other words, what Peter has just said before we come to chapter 2 is that conversion, our being born again through the preaching of God's Word, the gospel of Jesus Christ, implies a love for other believers. It's not that that comes somewhere down the line, it's that if we are born again, if we are God's people, we grow to love those in the church. But then we come to our passage for this morning. Peter is beginning to show us, starting in chapter 2, verse 1, how we as God's people must be different. And there will be three marks, three radically new distinctives for God's people that Peter shows us in this passage. The first mark, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, is that God's people are marked by a new kind of hunger, a new kind of hunger. Let me read verses 1 to 3 of First Peter chapter 2. Peter writes, "...put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation." If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So Peter begins in verse 1 with this command to put away malice and sin, to to continue loving each other well. That's following up on chapter 1, verse 23, this call to love others in the body of Christ. That's part of conversion. And then in verse 2, he answers this basic question, How do we grow? How is it that we grow as followers of Jesus Christ? And his answer is we grow through the Word. That pure spiritual milk that he mentions there is the same Word that he has been talking about in chapter 1, verse 22 to 25. God's Word. So Peter says, verses 1 to 3, the distinctive characteristic of real Christians, true followers of Jesus Christ, is their hungry longing for the milk. Of God's word. And verse 3 makes it clear that this is a distinctive of everyone who has truly come to know Christ. That if, that frightening if, perhaps, of verse 3. Now I want you to think with me for a moment about this new craving that Peter says will characterize Christians. Um, I've talked to some vegetarian friends of mine who will uh, explain to me that after years of, of not eating meat, they have come to crave a head of lettuce or, or, or a, a piece of fresh broccoli the way they used to crave a cheeseburger or a juicy steak. And I don't understand that at all, but, um, <laughs> but still, that, that's the kind of idea that, that Peter is putting forward here. It's this idea that Christians have developed a new taste, a new kind of craving. What used to be a craving for sin, perhaps, has become a craving for the milk of God's word. A craving to be filled with the truth of God's word regularly. So according to Peter, believers in Jesus are characterized by what they crave, what they hunger for, and that is part of what makes them different. It makes them new, distinct from the surrounding world. Now the picture that Peter uses is striking. It's a baby crying for milk. Now this is going to uh, connect in an especially real way with newer parents here. Uh, We're newer parents, our youngest just turned one, and uh, those of you who are in a similar stage of parenting know this cry that Peter is describing here in these verses. It's that crazed, obsessive, hungry cry that can only be satisfied by one thing, a feeding. That's the picture that Peter chooses to describe the way we ought to hunger, even cry out to be filled with Scripture. Scripture. And so I would ask you a question at this first point. Do you have that kind of a craving for God's Word? In other words, when you are engaging in personal devotions, and hopefully all of you do spend time in God's Word and in prayer daily, perhaps in the morning or in the evening or sometime during the day, is there a sense not only of this is the right thing to do, but I need this. And let me take it one step further. Are you utterly convinced that that is the primary way in which you will grow? Being saturated with the word of God daily. More than simply a spiritual discipline, which it is, but also your sustenance. So this is part of what makes us different. Verses 1 to 3, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are to be characterized by a new hunger for God's word, long for this pure spiritual milk, and then grow up by it. That's the first mark. The second one is a bit different. So Peter says real Christians, real followers of Jesus Christ are different, they're new, they're distinct because of this new hunger. Secondly, he points to their new identity, a new identity in verses 4 Now, there are two main pictures here that that Peter uses. It's a little more of a cognitive point than the first one. The first one is this command, long for uh, Scripture. Now, this is more um, a way that Peter is calling these believers to think about themselves. And you can see this in the dominance of the you are language in verses 4 to 10. Peter is intent on helping them understand what they are. So you can see it in verse 5. Uh, you yourselves are being built up. You are, verse 9, you are a chosen race. And then again in verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. So what are we, according to Peter? He gives us two pictures, two pictures. And the first picture is in verses 4 to 8. It's the picture of a house. What are we? We are a spiritual house together together as followers of Jesus Christ. Let me read verses 4 to 8. Peter writes, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So what are we? First of all, we are a house. We are living stones being together built up into a house Which glorifies God. Now, we'll say more about that holy priesthood language in just a moment because Peter fully develops it in verses 9 to 10. But for now, it's enough to observe that Peter seems to have in mind a picture of a great temple here uh, where all of the people have a priestly role in engaging in service and worship and sacrifice to God. So, who are we, living stones being built together into the spiritual house? And then, what are we built on? Peter says we are built on, this is a key point Jesus himself as the cornerstone of this house. And he gives us all of these Old Testament references. Isaiah 28:16 is the first one. He points to Jesus as the true cornerstone of this house. And then he moves to Psalm 118, it's, it's a passage that Jesus himself quotes in Matthew 21, that he who was rejected has become the cornerstone, the foundation of this house. And then finally he introduces a new idea in Isaiah 8, that third reference that he quotes, Isaiah eight fourteen, that he becomes a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, that is, Jesus himself becomes an issue for some people who are not part of this spiritual house. So I think what Peter's doing is he gives us this first picture of who we are, our new identity, is he's making a twofold point. The first is about the foundation of this house. It's Jesus Christ, the proclamation of Jesus, his gospel, the death and resurrection. But secondly, it's also a point about the distinction between those who are part of the house and those who are not. What's the distinction between a true Christian and between someone who doesn't follow Jesus, who isn't part of the spiritual house, it comes down to their view of Jesus. How they respond to Jesus Christ. Some stumble on Jesus and are offended by the message of his gospel, and others are built up on precisely that same gospel and that same Lord. Now, just a few quick observations about this first picture before we move on to Peter's second one. Three quick things. First of all, this picture is a corporate picture. In other words, we in this picture are stones. We are each stones that have a part in making up the house. We are not pictured here as as houses all by ourselves. We are part of something. When we follow Jesus, yes, we come to him in individual faith and repentance and following him, but we become part of something that's bigger than ourselves. That's Peter's picture of the church here. It's corporate. Number two, it's confessional. It's confessional. It's all about Jesus. Some stumble on him, some are offended by him, others are built up on him. So let me say this if the way we proclaim Jesus Christ in the world today, in our circles today, does not cause at least some to stumble or be offended, then we may find that we are not actually building on the foundation of the true Jesus and the true biblical gospel. Andy Crouch and Michael Horton wrote a book a few years back called The Church in Emerging Culture. And they said this, uh, used striking language to say it, but I think they're right. They said, if not everybody likes us, that is Christians, if not everybody likes us, and by the way, that's the greatest insecurity for many of us today, that might confirm that we are on the right track. Now, this is exactly where my conversation with my Muslim friend a few months back drastically changed course. You remember I mentioned that in the introduction. And he was explaining to me that we basically believe exactly the same things and live in exactly the same way. And at that point, I had to say, no, that's not right. We don't. We diverge on our view of Jesus Christ. That's where we part ways. It's Jesus. We don't both see him as the crucified and risen king in whom alone salvation, uh, human beings can find salvation. Forgiveness, eternal life, reconciliation with a holy God. He is the stone. He is our confession. So it's corporate This is a confessional picture, but then number three, this involves commitment. You can see the language there in verse 5, end of verse 5, of the offering of spiritual sacrifices to God. That is, we are all part of the worship. We all have a part in offering service to God in this spiritual house, this temple. So, are you in for this? Are you ready to be different in this way with the people of God? Are you ready to be one stone, one part in this spiritual house built on Jesus Christ offering spiritual sacrifices to God? That's the first picture. The second picture then comes in verses 9 to 10. And uh, the first picture was, was, was a spiritual house. This now is the picture of a set-apart people. It's Old Testament Israel that Peter now draws on to picture followers of Jesus Christ in the church. So let me read verses 9 to 10. He adds, "...but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." So Peter is again going back to the Old Testament, and he's using language that that God used to describe Israel, ethnically Jewish people. Turn back for a moment, if you will, to Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 to 6, and I'll give you a moment to turn there. This is the language that Peter draws on to describe the church in this letter. Exodus 19, 5 to 6, and you can hear God's words to the Israelites he says now therefore if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel these are hugely important verses that Peter gives us for connecting our identity of the as the people of God in the church today With God's people Israel in the Old Testament. In other words, Peter is saying very explicitly, We are Israel. We are the expanded people of God. In fact, he'll use the exact same words to describe this predominantly Gentile group of churches spread across Asia Minor that God used to describe his people in the Old Testament. Um, some of you remember singing that kid's song, Father Abraham. I sang it just the other day with my kids. You remember how it goes. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord. Now, I'm not sure about the right arm, left arm part, but the rest of its theology is pretty solid. Um, that is true. That is true. Peter's saying that song is true. If we are in faith, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, the same language described, uh, can describe us that described God's people in the Old Testament. Abraham is our dad. The Old Testament is our story if we are in Christ. And then he gives us the purpose for this calling. Why are we a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, this set-apart group of people? Second half of verse 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light? Now, again, this is a a, a a phrase proclaimed the excellencies of God that's rich with Old Testament allusions. We don't have time to get into them now, but let me just say this: What a wonderful way to describe what we are to do weekly in corporate worship. In other words, why do we go to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday? Well, we go to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's been such a joy to work for the last year and a half or two years with Dave Bullock. And one of his favorite phrases in, in staff meetings, sometimes when he's ranting a bit about problems in corporate worship, is, is he'll say, tell me who God is. That's what worship is about. It's about telling each other the excellencies of God proclaiming his excellencies, proclaiming the excellencies of the one who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And let me take that one step further and say what a Monday morning prayer that would be as you approach the week ahead. What's my goal as a follower of Jesus, as part of God's set-apart people in the week ahead? It's to proclaim his excellencies in my spheres of influence. Well then, Peter uses, if you look at uh, verse 10, he uses Old Testament language, again, this time from Hosea 2. You don't have to turn there, but he's referencing the language of the prophet Hosea who says to God's people, there will come a day when God will say, you are my people to the group of people he had formerly called not my people. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. People's point, uh, Peter's point here is to say to God's people, this is what you were and now this is what you are. And we all need to get this. This is what I call a gospel understanding, this sense of this is what I used to be apart from Christ and now this is what I am now. Apart from mercy, now under mercy. Not part of God's people, now joyfully a part of God's people. You know, we sing that song, it's a song that's new to some of you, some of you have been singing it for years, all I have is Christ. And there are those rich verses, verses 1 and 2, describing our lives apart from Christ. I once was lost in darkest night and thought I knew the way. And then the second verse, as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost. And sometimes those of us who are brought up in the church or perhaps were raised in Christian families can think, yeah, those are the verses um, that really, really rebellious people um, sing. (laughs) that those verses describe their testimonies, not mine. And what Peter is reminding us in verse 10 is that that is the gospel anthem for all of us who have been brought to Christ. This is what I was. Now this is what I am by grace alone. That's our anthem. So what is our new identity according to Peter? We are part of God's house. We are God's set-apart people. We're part of the same people in whom God began his work in the Old Testament uh, uh, under the leadership of Abraham through his faith. And we need to keep telling ourselves this is what we are, as Peter does. You are, you are, you are. You know, some of you are old enough to remember that Saturday Night Live skit. It was called. I think it was called Daily Affirmations with Stuart Smalley. And he would look at himself in the mirror and say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Well, it's not quite that, but what it is is collectively as God's people looking at ourselves in the mirror and repeating to ourselves the words of this text, you are, this is what you are, a set-apart people, stones in a spiritual house to proclaim the excellencies of God. Peter wants us to keep telling ourselves this if we are in Christ. We are part of something bigger than ourselves. Well, finally, his third point, He's, he's pointed to our new hunger, our new identity, and now the third mark of God's new people, God's distinct people, is that we are called to a new morality. A new morality, verses 11 and 12. I'm going to read verse 11 to the first half of verse 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So you can see there these two commands, these are moral instructions. They're flowing out of this section that has been uh, uh, dominated by you are language, helping us understand who we are as part of God's family. And now come these wonderful commands from Peter. He leads in with this beloved, I call you or I urge you. It's flowing out of this new identity speech. And there are two commands. Here's the first one. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Um, That word passions is the same word that Paul uses in Romans 1, 24, Uh, when he writes that God gave them over to the lusts or the passions of their hearts, that was God's way of of uh, sending judgment on those who were already pursuing perverse and unrestrained desires for sexual sin and other kinds of sin. In other words, it's a negative command. It's abstain, stand clear, stay away from those passions which are so destructive, they wage war against your heart and your soul. And then the second command is much more positive and really quite general. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. That word conduct can mean manner of life. It can even mean uh, conversation, the way you speak. And then honorable is just the general Greek word for good. It just means right, excellent. So it's this general positive command live honorably in the midst of Gentiles, that is, those who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior. So basically, what Peter gives us in these final two verses is a call to godliness. Both in what we say no to, abstaining from the passions of the flesh, and what we say yes to, living honorably in the midst of those who don't know Christ. But what I want you to especially notice here is Peter's reason for calling us to this new morality, this godliness of life. There is one purpose that Peter points to in this passage. It's not the only purpose for pursuing holiness, but it's the one that Peter chooses to focus on here. Second half of verse 12. Why should we keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter pictures people who don't know Jesus beginning to speak against those in these churches in ancient Asia Minor as evildoers. Now, this is the main kind of persecution that Peter is focused on in this letter. It's the kind of persecution of God's people that comes through, through words, through slander, through reviling, through insults. He uses those kinds of, uh, of words peppered throughout his letter to describe the persecution that's being faced by the Christians here. It's the social marginalization of followers of Jesus Christ. And by the way, this I think, and I'm not a prophet, But this, I think, is the kind of persecution that you and I are going to see more and more in our country in the years to come. But Peter says, when they speak against you as evildoers, the goal of your godliness of life, the way that you live honorably in their midst, is that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter refers to their their praising God on the final day, the day of judgment, the day of Christ's return. And I do think that this is conversion language here. Some don't. I think Peter's talking about conversion, literally, that, that these Gentiles, these people who are outside of the church, join God's people and are praising Jesus on the last day in part because God has used the witness of the Christians' lives around them to point them to Jesus and to back up their gospel message. Uh, my grandfather, my dad's dad, Grandpa, uh, Grandpa Bob, we called him, Robert Nielsen, um, didn't believe in, in he was totally sanctified. He was the closest thing I've ever seen to total sanctification. I don't believe in that either. But he preached a sermon once, I think on this text, and the sermon's title was Sanctification God's bridge across the credibility gap. Sanctification, God's bridge across the credibility gap. I think that's the idea that Peter is putting forward in verse 12. That one thing our godliness of life does as we become more and more Christ-like by the power of the Holy Spirit within us, if we've put our faith in Christ, is that it builds credibility for our witness with the people around us. Some of you, too, have heard uh, Don Carson, Dr. D.A. Carson from Trinity tell a story, which I think I've heard him tell half a dozen times, about a campus minister in, in England who uh, was doing gospel ministry on a campus and was approached by a young student who was an atheist. And the student challenged him, called him a hypocrite, said, you know, you followers of Jesus Christ, you're all the same as, as anybody else. Following Jesus makes no difference in your life whatsoever. And the Christian minister said to the student who was an atheist, watch me. Watch me. And he invited him to come be his roommate for the year. And amazingly, the the student who was an atheist took him up on it. By the end of the year, he'd given his life to Christ. In part, largely due to the drastically different, new, distinct life that he saw this Christian living. I think that's the point. Peter is saying that our commitment to holiness, our commitment to godliness, by God's grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is for God first, yes, but it's also for the sake of witness to the watching world. Now, I wonder what that motivation would do to our battle against sin in the week ahead. There's all kinds of different motivations, I know, for, for fighting sin, for pursuing Christ, um, Many of you know I've been the college pastor the last three years, and it's not uncommon for a young man to come to me and say, I, I really think it's time for me to, to begin battling, fighting for sexual purity. And I quickly find out that part of the motivation for that is a new relationship with a young woman whom he really respects, and now it's time to get serious about sexual purity. And that's not a bad reason as long as it's accompanied with a love for Jesus, But I wonder what it would look like if this motivation, this evangelistic motivation, gripped us in the week ahead in our struggle against sin and our pursuit of Christ. Maybe it would look like this prayer, God help me to watch my mouth this week. I know I'm struggling with my words, but help me to do that so that others would see you in me in the week ahead through my kind and encouraging words. Or maybe it's, Lord, would you help me to kill my addiction to viewing graphic sexual images so that one day you can use me to share my spirit-empowered story of victory over this sin with someone who's either struggling with it or who hasn't yet met Jesus Christ personally. Now listen, none of us does this perfectly. None of us has arrived at this point of perfect, honorable conduct that can point people to Jesus with a perfect life. You're not there yet, I'm not there yet. And the guys who play basketball with me every Thursday morning know that in the heat of competition, my conduct is not always completely honorable. But the point that Peter is making here is that growth in godliness, a a picture of faithfulness, honorable life, growth to be more like Christ is a powerful witness to the watching world. And we need to be pursuing it to that end. Now, let me say one more thing about our current context before we conclude. In our current context today, the label, the stereotype for us as followers of Jesus Christ is shifting. And I think the events of the last week and a half or so is making it shift much more quickly. The stereotype has been of Christians in, in wider culture, broader culture, that we are kind of pie in the sky, out of touch prudes. And we're jokingly dismissed as being behind the times. The shift that we will see happening is no longer will we be simply jokingly dismissed as out of touch, but we will be very ferociously labeled as as hateful, intolerant, judgmental bigots. We will be called evildoers by the world if, for example, we seek to maintain a commitment to the gospel, to the teachings of Scripture, to what God says about marriage, to a sexual ethic that lines up with the Bible. To put it slightly differently, verse 12 is happening and will continue to happen to us. And so I wonder what might Peter say to Christians today who, for example, know that they must maintain a commitment to the biblical sexual ethic? Well, I think he would say exactly what he has already said here. Watch your conduct. Win them over with your love. Even as you affirm what the Bible teaches, who God is, what God means for marriage, what God wants from his people, the exclusive claims of Christ, even as you affirm those things, astonish them with your grace and with your kindness and with your generosity. In other words, make your way of life such that that the world can no longer reconcile calling you an evildoer with the way that you love them and care for them. Evangelistic morality. So what does it mean to be Christians? What does it mean to follow Jesus in this world? Are we really something different? Are we something new, distinct? Well, Peter says, oh, yes, you are. You've got a new hunger for the Word. You've got a new identity as a holy and set-apart people. And you are called to a new morality. And all of this newness, Peter says, is part of God's way of reaching out in love to a desperately hurt and lost and broken world through His people. So, College Church, how are we doing Are we ready to say to the world around us, watch us. Come in here. See what's going on. You're going to see the real thing. You're going to see what the gospel looks like in the people of God's lives. Get in here. And are you stretching your arms out to the world in love and with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, my prayer is that it would be so in this church that for many, many years, God's people here would be hungering for God's word, embracing an identity of God's people, and living in holiness for God's glory, and so pointing many to the only Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we're in many ways astounded by the way you speak of us. Lord, that we would get to, because of the grace of your Son on the cross, be part of a spiritual house called to proclaim your excellencies in the world around us. That astonishes us, it ought to humble us. And yet, I pray, Lord, that it would help us to respond, to rise up to live for Jesus, to proclaim his truth, and so to point many to the way of salvation. And so we give ourselves to that call together in Jesus' name. Amen.